2: only have value as they are in relationship to a man, aside from the man, Christ Jesus. He's the only one. That a woman has no value except if she's in relation to a man, that message will crush women. And what if a woman can't find a church where women are valued, single women are valued, widows are valued? If you can't find a church that's complementarian that will teach you that, then find a church that's egalitarian that will teach you that. And that's where, that's where I'm at. Because whether you're a complementarian or egalitarian, that's not how you're justified. You're justified by faith in Christ. That's what justifies us. So my perspective on gender roles doesn't justify me. My perspective on gender roles is ancillary, it's peripheral. What really matters is that Jesus Christ has called me righteous and forgiven. That's that's what matters.
1: You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at
0: PreacherBoysDoc. Now, Here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Voice Podcast. I'm so excited to welcome Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker to the show with me today. Uh, Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I've had a lot of authors on here in the last two months and I feel like I keep saying this book is a must read and this book is a must read, but really reading through Worthy this last month was just incredible and it was something where I kept thinking of different interviews. I had different guests that I've had on different survivors of abuse that I've talked to people who've experienced uh, a of unworthiness within the church, which unfortunately seems to be a pretty common feeling, but I'm, I'm really curious to know a little bit about how the two of you connected. First of all, I know, I know you connected with Eric over an article that he wrote a little while back, but what kind of drew you two together to focus in on this project specifically?
2: For me, it was actually not even the article, it was a series of tweets that Eric had put out about women who were the first in the Bible to do something. And so that series of tweets I saw, and then then the article came out. So what really drew me to that was, first of all, here's a man and a pastor, And he's talking really succinctly and compassionately and in light and really in a way that really enlightened me about how important women were in God's plan of redemption. And so that to me, that was very intriguing to me, which was why then we eventually interviewed him on our family's podcast. And, and I was just so happy to see a man, a pastor talking about the fact that women had value.
0: Why do you feel that's such a rarity? Why do you think seeing something (laughs) like that is something that catches you off guard? And I I guess I'll pose this question to you, Eric. Why did you feel like this was something that people don't really talk about often or that it's at least not discussed enough?
3: Yeah, I. There's probably lots of ways to answer that question. What brought me into this topic was listening to the stories of women, particularly as the Me Too and then Church Too movement took off. I was listening to the stories of these women who had been abused in various contexts. And I, I realized I know almost nothing about the experience of women in the church and so I just started asking women to help me understand uh, what they were, what their experiences were in religious spaces, uh, particularly in the Christian church. And then at the same time, I was just looking to notice women in the Bible and to ask the question, what does the text actually have to say about women and how does God include them and how does Jesus treat them? And so I think to answer your question, why does this topic need to be addressed or why is it overlooked? I think because it's rarely pointed out. We rarely hear teaching about where women show up in the storyline of the Bible. And if passages about women are taught on, they're often the women's devotional at a ladies retreat or something like that. And so we think that the stories about women are something that women should study. And in fact, when this book was coming out, we would tell people, I'd tell friends about this book, Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women, and they'd say, oh, that sounds like a great book. I'll buy that for my wife. And maybe the women in our church could study it. And it never dawned on them that understanding the value of women is something that pastors should study and Christian men should study. So I I think basically we overlook it because we haven't seen it. And that's a vicious cycle.
0: I I think that's something I appreciate early on in the book. Was it mentions Phoebe was viewed as a saint first, not as a woman. Like it wasn't like a female ministry worker or a female or or a female this. It was like oh, she was a saint. Like she was given equal worth and value. So I, I know there's been a lot of writing that's been done on quote unquote, biblical manhood and womanhood, there's even been a book specifically written by that title. There's, a, there's been a lot of different writing done on this. Where do you think the church has missed the mark when it comes to talking about, have they maybe not addressed it correctly or have done maybe damage with the way they've dealt with manhood and womanhood?
2: In the Bible, then if you start there, then anything you have to say afterwards is going to be shaped by that lack and really a lack. And although I have to say, a lot of the people who have written on biblical manhood and womanhood, air quotes, they start off, many of them saying that ontologically, in our essence, men and women are equal. But then so much then of what's talked about is how, is what women should not do. And there seems to be such a focus on what women can't do shouldn't do you know one of the pushbacks that we got was that in our book we didn't talk about what women shouldn't do or can't do biblically because that wasn't the topic of our book but there were people who wanted us to write a a different book and weren't happy with the book we wrote because we didn't want to talk about that I think so much talk has been, so much time has been spent talking about how women are dangerous, women are are usurpers, women are uh, easily deceived, all of those kinds of things. So much much time has been spent talking about that, that we miss the primary message of Scripture, which is women and men equally have value and are important to be used by the Lord to build his kingdom and and one of thing is so much of what's been talked about has to do with authority and submission right as if that's the only as if that's the only thing you can talk about if you're going to talk about women you have to talk about authority and submission and that's actually what we were told why aren't you talking about authority and submission because right. it's not our topic but that's if you talk about women you have to talk about that supposedly
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it seems like when women do come up in conversation, there's select passages and it's generally over whether they can be behind a pulpit or how they're supposed to be in the home and misses what I, what I really appreciate in the book is like just tracing the back of the book has all of those first. Like all these yeah. things that where women played vital roles, not just in their homes or not just in their communities, but like even in the redemptive story, like how many women play these important roles. And so just going back to what you were just talking about, like there there was a quote in the book that it hit me. And and it is one of those things. It's when you're sitting there as a man reading it, you never think about what it feels like to be a woman in the pew feeling like, oh, this faith is for the men. And then they pass a little bit on to me, whatever I can handle. And we do, we look at Genesis and we look at that at Eve and the way she's preached about, you mentioned the book it's as a failure and a warning. This is when women can become the deceiver. They can really mess things up. So make sure you don't do that again. And it's really just a very demeaning depiction of women and a really poor way to to examine those passages. I think I do want to circle into like where value comes from, because you talk a lot about the intrinsic value of womanhood and of just man in general, like man and woman together. Can you talk about how, one, how we know that we have value? Because I think that was an important part of the book. And then two, like, how do so many self-proclaimed fundamentalists and Bible readers walk away from scripture with such a low view of women.
3: Yeah, I think we find the intrinsic value of women almost right away in Genesis chapter one, where God says, let us make man in our own image. And he made them male and female. And he doesn't make one of them in his image and the other one sort of part image, whatever image was left over. That's what he made the woman. No, he made both of them fully the image of God. And, and he gave them both uh, the same blessing and command that they were to fill the earth and exercise dominion over it and over all the animals that, that filled it. And he never said anything about them exercising dominion over one another. This was a partnership from the beginning. In fact, when we see the man created first and then we learn it's not good for him to be alone. We learn that he cannot fulfill this commission to exercise dominion on earth without the woman. And mm. she's not just a, a little add-on to make things easier. She is a, a strong and a necessary ally without whom God's mission can't be accomplished. And then even after they are brought together at the end of Genesis 2, The emphasis is the fact that they will be unified, not that one will reign over the other. And in fact, the man is then sacrificing. He's leaving his family to be united with her. And that's a glorious picture of what, of the worth of the man and the woman being equals together. And I think that so many people who have believed the Bible, one of the reasons we go astray on on that equality is simply because we're sinners. And we sometimes look like Satan. We look to use God's word to justify our sinfulness. Mm. And our pride makes us, our pride is behind racism and our pride, we want us to be the best. And so it's easy as men throughout history, particularly when our bodies are generally stronger than that of women, to use that strength to bolster and benefit ourselves at the cost of the other who is often uh, the woman. And it's easy to go into Genesis 3 and begin twisting things, accusing Mm -hmm. Eve of misrepresenting God's word because her quoting of it isn't word for word as when he gave it to Adam and then we totally overlook the fact that Jesus and the apostles will quote the Old Testament, and it's not word for word what we find in the Old Testament. It's right. a summary. And so if a woman does it, it's because she is she is a person who twists God's word or is incapable of handling it faithfully. And if it's Jesus or the apostles, they're Jesus and the apostles. They have a right to do that. And then we look at that passage in, in Genesis 3, where it says that her desire shall be toward her husband, but he will rule over her. And we found a way to make that mean that she wants to usurp him and to, to have authority over him and to rebel against him. And of course, that rule becomes a abusive rule. It's a trampling of her. And we see that play out in the in the next chapters of Genesis, but really Her desire shall be toward him means just like the rest of that poem, she's going to continue to desire to do the good things God created us to do, just like the man wants to work the ground, but now thorns and thistles are going to grow. She wants to have children, but it's going to be increased in its painfulness. And she wants to partner with her husband. She wants to be unified with him. And instead, he is going to rule over her. But we take these things and we teach that women can't understand the Bible accurately. They're not perhaps intellectually or emotionally capable of this kind of uh, logical reading of the Bible. We say that they're out to overthrow and tempt and seduce men. And, And then we begin to think of them that way. And because we think of them as a danger, we exclude them like you should exclude a dangerous thing. And we even gaslight women into thinking, yeah, I, I am below him in intelligence and I am easily emotionally manipulated and I can't even trust my own motives because by nature now after the fall, all I want to do is rebel against him. And so even then when they're abused, women can begin to think, is this really abuse or is this because of my dangerous nature uh, that I've brought this on myself, or I even deserve this? And that's just a terrible and tragic lie.
0: And Elise, I definitely want to follow up on that question with you a little bit, but I have to say that was the portion that you're just speaking to in the book is one that I, it was several days ago, I was reading through it and I got to the section where I was talking about the flesh of my flesh bone and my bone. And you often hear that at least I did growing up, you would hear that. And it, it was like, you have this kind of secondhand copy of the man. So it's your, oh, you came, you you hear jokes about, oh, you came from my rib. You're part of me. And really when you read the passage, even if you just read it without putting any bias on it, it's, oh, that's a beautiful statement. Like you are one and the same as me, you're flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And I was sitting at the table and that's what I, that's an endorsement I can give of the book is like it made me run over and grab my Bible and open up. Ephesians. And I was like, so when it says husbands need to love their wives as their own bodies for no one hates his own flesh. I was like, that is a call back to God's original design. It doesn't Ephesians doesn't push into, and he shall rule over her. It pushes back to your flesh of my flesh bone of my bone. And I was like, that's such a beautiful picture that nobody around me at least understood within the church, or at least they didn't mm-hmm. teach it. If they did understand it, that information was completely suppressed in a lot of ways. But you mentioned a little bit about the idea that women, not necessarily being able to handle the theology or the idea that they are pushed to the side. There's all this robust theology and study for the men. And at least you've, you've had, you've done tons of writing with very robust theology and and really have worked to a lot of times for women here's the Bible as it is. You can study this. You can read this. Have you felt a lot of pushback? And and I know even with this book, you've felt that that kind of pushback, but have you felt pushback as you've tried to push theology in front of not just men in the church, but to, to women in the church as well?
2: Yeah. In part, the pushback that I have gotten, I want to say it's getting better. I want to say it's better. But let's say a couple of decades ago, when I first started writing, I basically was told by publishers that women wouldn't buy books that were strong theologically by other women. Mm. Now, that's, that was their perspective, and I, but I would disagree with it. I think that there's this sort of o- overriding perspective, I'll, I'll try to put it this way. I've had men say to me, at least you write like a man and now I know what they mean. They're trying to, they mean that as a compliment, like maybe my writing isn't fluffy and maybe I use theology well or something like that. I And I appreciate that, I know what they're doing. It actually isn't a compliment, it's actually a statement as to this sort of underlying presupposition that women are not able to or interested, able to understand or interested in theology. Mm-hmm. And now, in that one, one sense, women, we could say women are, women aren't, women generally don't have time to just spend uh, days and days thinking about some obscure point. Okay? But if you teach a woman, this is why, in your life today, this is why this theological point is really important. Mm-hmm. They love it. Right. And I can't even tell you how many times in conferences I've had women come to me and say, I stopped going to women's conferences years ago because I can't stand the fluff and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna go to another conference where they teach me how to fold a napkin that looks like the empty tomb. Okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that anymore. They really want theology. Part of the reason they haven't been getting it is, I want to say, uh, maybe publishers, okay? Let's just call that out. But then also there's this underlying presupposition that women are weaker intellectually. Women don't have a desire to understand things that would be deep, deeper intellectually. They are, as Eric was saying, easily deceived. They just don't have the capacity One of the church fathers said, (laughs) you're talking about the image of God. One of the church fathers said, man is in the image of God, but woman is a deformed image unless she's with a man, at which point she has the image of God. So when you have that from a church father, and nobody would actually come out and say that, but I want to say That's just rife throughout the whole thing. That's been there since the beginning of the church. It's been there. And actually, even in the Old Testament, Jewish men were taught that if you are talking to a woman about theology or the Bible, you're wasting your time. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't do it because you're going to damn her because she will then begin to think about things she shouldn't think about. That's the presupposition that is throughout all of our... All of our church fathers, it's all there. And when you've got that, then to overcome that and say, no, actually, women are able to understand. Women do want to understand. It's a hard row.
0: Yeah. It's not something that is explicitly said. Some pulpits, they do explicitly say things like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, they but, do. But also like we do have in, I would say I'm more in reform circles, I would say at least theologically. And and you see a lot of emphasis on, on childbirth and child rearing. And for women, my wife and I talk about it often for women who can't conceive or for women like you essentially can't fulfill your purpose. And so you're purposeless at that point, or if you can't have multiple children, or if you aren't married, and that's an issue. Singleness is a whole nother rabbit trail of how we deal with single people within the church, but yeah, it's the things that aren't said speak loudly, like the way that women are, are just taught to fulfill these one or two things and you're done. There's a Bible college that we've talked about on the show a lot in, in Indiana and their classes for women are, are laughable. Like it's like college classes on canning and crockpot pot cooking. And, it's, and then you've got men going through the doctrine and theology and how to speak and hermeneutics. And it's such a, it's such a shocking contrast. And it is, I think a lot of it just comes from really flawed teaching that goes back down, not just 19th century and 20th century and 21st, right. we're talking centuries old kind of bias. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the conversation about women in the church has started arising because of the church to movement. We mentioned that a little bit. And my show specifically tends to deal with victims of abuse. Most of my audience, I would say experienced some form of abuse or know someone closely connected to a situation of abuse. So The Me Too movement happened. It's happened with church too. Do you think that the church's teaching on women, I think we were already touched on this, has helped cultivate an environment where abuse has become very commonplace? And what do you think are maybe some of the most fatal kind of flaws in our teaching about women that's helped make the environment very comfortable for abusers and very dangerous for women in the church?
3: I think that's a great question. And one of the first things I want to point out is abuse the sin behind abuse will grasp any teaching it can for an opportunity to abuse and so we can look at the book i think it's the the me too reckoning and the author she's she is a female pastor she's ministering yeah. in a egalitarian context and that's where she was abused we can look at bill hybels where he's basically using, look at how I value women and I include women in leadership so that I can have access to them and mistreat them. And so it it can go on both sides, but I think there's things about conservative and complementarian theology, which that, that could describe me to a certain extent that Satan uses truth and twists it to do his bidding. And so I think when you One of the things that has happened, and Elise mentioned this, is there's been so much emphasis on authority and submission. And men in that context can begin to view themselves primarily as leaders who have authority. And then they view women, uh, as we've said, as easily deceived, less intelligent, emotionally weak. and uh, and usurpers and dangerous. And so they begin to see their primary function to be a leader with authority who protects them and takes care of them and makes sure they don't get into any trouble. Well, at the same time, making sure you keep your distance so that they don't harm you. And when we see Jesus and his apostles, when we look at the epistles and how they talk about being a man, like where does, do the apostles tell husbands, lead your wives and have authority over them? Th- they don't. The, any kind of leadership is inferred from the command given to the woman to submit to her husband. But even there, the fact that the command is given to the woman implies that she has agency. She's right. the one hearing it understanding it choosing to obey it the man is never told force your wife to submit what he is told is you need to sacrifice yourself for her good so that you can be unified in this endeavor it, that's what jesus calls us to be if we would be great we must be a servant to all and he comes not as the suffering leader or the suffering authority he comes as the suffering servant And we have, even when we talk about servant leader, the emphasis falls on leader. And oh, by the way, you should serve. The emphasis, though, in the New Testament falls on servant. And the way that you lead is by being the first to sacrifice, the first to serve. And that sort of love and kindness is the sort of thing she should want to cooperate and join you in. And that's that beautiful picture of unity we see in Genesis 2, where the two become one flesh. So I think that emphasis on men having authority and women having these inherent weaknesses that men apparently don't have lends itself very well to both the abuse of women and the cover-up of abuse. Because you've already conditioned the minds to think that him exercising authority and her needing it, deserving it, is the way things are. And so you can actually think that what is abuse is a godly picture of manhood and womanhood when it's actually an evil.
2: Yeah, and let me piggyback on that a little bit, Eric. Thanks so much for that. Abuse is about power. Abuse is not about lust. Abuse is about power over someone else. And when the church continually teaches that men, just because they're men, have power over women it makes it makes abuse almost a given and you add to that this perspective that was really strong i don't know my kids are all grown up and <laughs> they got kids of their own the whole purity culture perspective which is that women have a responsibility to somehow make sure that their brothers don't lust. So in, in a sense, it's, oh, it, it, and that's where we come up with saying things like, see, it's your fault if you wouldn't have worn that. I wouldn't have done whatever. Okay, if you wouldn't have acted that way. Well, see, that's because women are continually blamed by the way they dress, the way they look, the way they speak for the problems that men have. I have significant issues with the whole purity culture and with the whole modesty culture because if men's lust could be conquered by women dressing in a certain way then there ought to be no lust at all in the middle east put women in a burqa
0: no
2: you're not going to you're not going to conquer the problem that men have in their own hearts now obviously Women should be careful, but abuse is about power. And if we continually tell men that they have power over women, and oh, by the way, if you're feeling like you want to have some sort of an abusive relationship with that woman, it's really her fault because of the way she looks.
0: Hmm.
2: See we've twisted the whole thing. And as a matter of fact, I think when the New Testament talks about women dressing modestly, they're not saying, make sure your skirts come down halfway in between your knee and your foot. They're saying, don't show off how much money you have. No. That's the whole point of modesty in the New Testament. Don't dress in such a way, don't, dress in, don't cut your hair and look like you're a prostitute. But on the other hand, when the, when the epistles talk about women dressing in a modest manner, they're talking about, don't show off your money. Because there are people around you who don't have any. Hmm. And so you need to love your neighbor. But we've set up this paradigm that men are to be in authority. Men are to have power. And, and if they have a problem with lust, it's women's fault.
3: Another way of putting what she's saying about abuse is about power. I was just talking with someone this morning and explaining that the difference between a consensual act and abuse is agency. Hmm. Uh, does this person have the ability in that situation to say no? And when you know we were we were speaking with, um, I'm forgetting her name now, Elise, Gregoire, oh, Sheila. Sheila Gregoire, yeah, Sheila Gregoire, and she was saying that I think it was in the top twenty books on marriage, Christian books on marriage, that mention sex none of them use the word consent. And they spoke of a wife having sex with her husband as her duty. This is your obligation, your duty. And it's sinful not to do it when he says he needs it. Then you have no agency. This is required of you. And the husband can go ahead and take it. The same thing with submission. Hmm. She is... In Ephesians 5, she's called to submit. He's not called to make her submit. And I I would just say to women out there listening, if you don't have the right to say no and express your opinion and decline, whether it's sex or what you're going to eat, then you are in an abusive relationship. That is not how he is to treat you. And I, and I would say to men listening, respecting a woman's agency is so essential, because when we look at creation, again, we don't see that the man is going to be ruling over the woman in God's original design. And we also see that he, and, and, and I'm a Calvinist, I believe in, a, I have a high view of God's sovereignty, and in, he, he gives humans agency. He says, eat of any of the trees of the garden. He doesn't give a menu. He says, you decide what you want to eat and you decide how you want to exercise dominion over the world, but you can't have the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from this tree. That sort of power to make decisions is at the core of what it means to be God's representatives or God's image bearers. And when we take that away from women, We are robbing them of the value of being in God's image. And we're sinning not just against them, but against the creator they represent.
0: Yeah. And that's something I'm so glad you brought up purity culture because it's something that comes up a lot. And and I think it's something that gets misunderstood. It's, It's a hot topic, right? Because when you say it's when you get in the conversation about modesty, or if you get in the conversation about purity culture, many within Christian communities will say, Why would you go after that of all the things we could be fighting, why go after a call for young women to be pure or to, to refrain from sex before marriage, or why go after people who want to dress in a way that doesn't draw attention to their bodies or like, why go and fight that fight? And I think that misses the point of the dialogue is a lot of the issues with purity culture like anything, I, the quote, I, I never understood when I was a, when I was a teenager, I remember hearing the quote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I never understood what that meant. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And I see it now. So much of what I talk about in the show starts with good intentions, the purity culture. And, and I'm going to blank on the name I've been reading of my books, but uh, Rachel? yeah, Rachel's <laughs> book, talking back to purity culture, does a great job dissecting this is that. The issue with purity culture was not the intent, you know, the intent was a reaction to the, the sex crazed activities that were happening around the period, all that kind of started. And it was a response to, to things that were in an extreme that we didn't need to go to as a society. But what it did is it still sexualized all of the women involved with it. It just did it on the other end of the spectrum. It attached all of their worth and identity to whether they were sexually active or not. But you have one side of the culture that's on this far end of the extreme where you better be having sex and a lot of it and with whoever you want. And then you have the other side says, if you do slip up and have sex or even do something sexual, your value has dropped. Right. Tremendously. I've heard people say, my parents taught me that every time you sleep with someone, you give a piece of your heart to them, or every time you do this, you lose a piece of yourself. And that's one, that's a terrifying message to have all of your identity and worth tied to that. But especially if you've been sexually assaulted, are you sitting there going, man, I've been stripped of all my value and worth. And then on top of that, am I going to be able to be the wife that I need to be like, there's all of these layers to it. And, and I, th- I think it's really like you said it it comes down to the value of the person are you devaluing them are you creating a system in which all of your worth is tied to something that can happen to you that you can do or is it tied to who christ is for you which is a gospel message but we miss that so often for for women so i i really did i appreciate you bring that up and it is it's something that i think gets glossed over because i think people want to assume the good intent of it and let it ride from there I didn't intend to talk about this, but it, it, it's come up a little bit. I've had people on the show that are complementarian, egalitarian. You've mentioned some that are and some that aren't. I know in the book, there's some complementarian positions that are laid out. And I've talked with people, again, I've talked to people who've come out of some of the worst examples of some of these environments. And there's been a range of both, but I would say a large majority, at least of the independent Baptist world, come from a very strong, at least by label, complementarian kind of background. And so many people I talk to look at those kind of constructs with a lot of trepidation and, and concern. And, and I think a lot of ask questions, like how can you be complementarian, but also say, I believe in empowering women. It seems to them to be like antonyms to each other. Like, hey, we believe in empowering women, but also women and men are complementary and serve different roles. So can you talk a little bit about having a, having a theological view of women that both is complementarian, but also empowering toward women.
2: Yeah, I think first of all, I, I'm going to speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for Eric, so I'm speaking for myself. I would be what you might call a very thin complementarian, <laughs> okay. And that doesn't mean that I've been like dieting because <laughs> it's been COVID. In in any place where I might hold on to that. I am where so many women are in that what they have seen portrayed as complementarian is really patriarchal and patriarchy is toxic. It's toxic, toxic for men who feel like they have to fulfill certain roles in order to be manly men. It crushes men and it crushes women. I think patriarchy in itself is just is so terrible. I can say, I believe that women have value, but, and I would say very lightly, yes, I do believe in a, at least a complementarian church system. However, that complementarian church system had better be very careful that what their not doing is falling into all of those old ways of doing things. This has got to change. I was listening, I, sadly, my daughter sent me a sermon which I could only listen to about two minutes of the other day from a man who's preaching about how uh, husband, or women need to really look a certain way in order to keep their husbands from mm-hmm. uh, lust. No. I, I couldn't listen to more than a minute of it. it. It just sent me way over the edge. Because that's so crushing. And it's not just crushing to women. Okay, so you've got this congregation and this man is saying, women, you have an obligation to look a certain way because you're a husband. And the woman who's, who doesn't look that way she's crushed. The woman who thinks she does look that way, she's crushed as well because she's going to age and she Mm -hmm. has to kill herself to try to continue to be this thing. And then the man, the husband, who doesn't have a wife that looks that way, he's crushed because he thinks he's less of a man. Mm -hmm. And the man who does think he has a wife that looks that way, he's like, he's full of pride and pride will crush you. That whole... It's a little fire here that the whole message that women only have value as they are in relationship to a man aside from the man Christ Jesus he's the only one but that a woman has no value except if she's in relation to a man that message will crush women and what if a woman can't find a church where Women are valued without, you know, single women are valued, widows are valued. Mm. If you can't find a church that's complementarian that will teach you that, then find a church that's egalitarian that'll teach you that. And that's where, I, that's where I'm at, because whether you're a complementarian or egalitarian, that's not how you're justified. You're justified by faith in Christ. That's what justifies us. So my perspective on gender roles doesn't justify me. My perspective on gender roles is ancillary. It's peripheral. What really matters is that Jesus Christ has called me righteous and forgiven. That's, what's ma- that's what matters.
0: How am I supposed to follow that up? <laughs> that's uh, You weren't joking about a little bit of fire. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a really good way to explain it. And I think I heard the exact same sermon. I had some people sharing a very similar, unfortunately, it could have been a different one that sounded very similar, but I think I know exactly what you're referring to. And it's that kind of teaching was commonplace growing up. It was such a, it was such a normal thing to hear things like that. I remember the. There was a phrase in the clip where he talks about if the bar needs painting, paint it when he went on this mm-hmm. rant. And I, I remember hearing that all the time and it, it's interesting and, and sad. I told my wife the other day, I grew up in the church and I feel like I've spent the last four or five years consciously trying to unlearn so many toxic traits that I heard from the pulpit and in mm-hmm. some of them I'm discovering That I didn't recognize as toxic as I have, as I have a daughter who's three and I'm starting to think about how am I going to teach her about herself? How am I going to teach her to think about other people? How am I going to teach her to stand up for herself and things like that? It's man, I would never want someone to say something about my daughter, like they said from the pulpit growing up. And I would never want to view my daughter in the way that people viewed their kids or their wives. And even with the moment I talked about where I went and grabbed my Bible and sat down, I'm like even though I didn't consciously think, oh, you're less than me, like to sit there and be the way the Bible should, when we're truly experiencing it is where it's like this gobsmacked awe moment to say, wow, God created this perfect partner who is flesh of my flesh. Like that, that not only fills me with gratefulness to a creator, but that makes me sit down across from my wife at the dinner table and go look at this. We are equal and you have value. And like, when I'm thinking about loving someone like my own body, what a crazy command, (laughs) like what a strong call to action for a husband. If you're going to that section of scripture and you're stopping where it says, why submit to your husband? And you're like pounding that from the pulpit and you're missing like the sacrificial love of a husband for a wife, like Christ loved the church. Like you're missing, the context in which that's presented, and I, I was—I'm reading through right now uh, Beth Allison Barr's book, *The Making of Biblical Womanhood*, and it talks about even the section right above that where it says it, it talks about submitting to each other, and then we've got a little right. descriptor sentence that breaks up that part of the chapter and it says women and or husbands and wives, it, a little translator note right there. It's oh, we separate that from the actual command to submit to each other and this loving kind of communal relationship. It's just, it's been a very fascinating journey, like reading all this material, studying this and understanding like how valued, like the Bible values women, God values women a ton. But if you walked away from a lot of churches, egalitarian or not, or complementary or not, you don't walk away with that message or that sense of awe. Unfortunately, it just seems very rare. Yeah. I want to, I I don't want to dive too much into the conversation about which side of that you should be on, but I am curious. There are a lot of people who listen to the show who are pastors. A lot would be, like I said, complementarian or egalitarian, but for those who are in churches where biblically they hold the position, women aren't to be pastors or not to be in an elder position. Again, not debating whether or not that's accurate or not, but there's a mix. How can churches make sure not to tune out the voices of women and to hear hear what women need and are in need of in the church without you know without just brushing them out or blocking them out or making sermons that only speak to men in the church or creating structures that maybe women would see warning signs that men won't in certain situations how can churches really hear the voice of women in their congregations
3: that's a great question eric and i think it goes back to even the last question you posed, you said there might be listeners out there who say, how can you be a complimentarian and also speak about empowering women? And I don't know what to do with the labels. I describe myself sometimes as a complementarian because I don't know what other word to use, but there are definitely ways in which complementarianism has been outlined and described that I would totally reject. But I, I think the fact that we have to ask that question shows us how far off track a lot of complementarianism has gone because what we're after when we're thinking about gender biblically is, is not a recovery of what we had in the church in 1950. Hmm. It's it's a recovery of what we had in Genesis one and two. And what we see in Genesis one and two is the man and woman equally sharing power as they exercise dominion over the earth. And I believe that in marriage and in the church, there, it, there is a sort of picture going on in these covenant contexts, just like it was a covenant context in creation. There's a picture of how Jesus loves his people. And what do we see when Jesus redeems his people, redeems his bride? When she was dead He gave his life to give her life. When she was enslaved, he was bound in the cords of death to set her free. When she was wandering, he gave her purpose. And so all these pictures of redemption are pictures of empowerment, where he frees her from what enslaves her so that she can thrive as she was designed to live. Jesus empowers the church. He authorizes his bride to go out and to preach with his authority to make disciples of all the nations. And Revelation ends not with, and he shall reign over his people. It reigns that he, It says that he will be in the midst of his people, and we will reign with him. His people will reign with him. And so he gives us a place alongside himself in reigning over the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is a story of Jesus empowering his bride to reign with him. And if that's what you understand gender to be about, then you have to be focused. No matter what your picture of who can be a pastor or an elder is in the local church— if if you hold that only men can be ordained to the office of elder, those men should be understanding that their task is to be servants who help every member of that church be empowered to minister and thrive as God has designed them to. It's not about those elders exercising their authority and keeping people in submission. So really, I think gender roles, I hate the term, but what's going on with gender has everything to do with empowerment from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we see that as totally incompatible with complementarianism just shows us that that whole discussion has gone far afield from where the Bible is.
2: And also, let me, I'll just say Eric's done a really good job in the book. With, with this open letter to pastors saying these are the ways you can draw women into the ministry of your church. And if on a Sunday morning, let's say, there are no women's voices that are heard, you're, you're going against the Apostle Paul, who said, mm. when women prophesy and pour or pray, this is how they need to be dressed. There's a command there about how I'm supposed to dress when my voice is heard in the congregation. So whatever else you want to do about what does prophecy mean, whatever, let's all parse that out. But the reality is Paul is giving a command to me. This is how I am supposed to dress in the culture in which I live when my voice is heard in the congregation. Hmm. And if my voice isn't heard in the congregation, then Paul's command to me, I can't fulfill Paul's command to me.
0: Wow, Yeah, that's really good. I I know we're here right at the end of our time, but I want to ask a a question and it's where I want to close, but it came in from one of our patrons of the show and they asked what influence long-term do you want to see from the book? If you could see, and I'll maybe even make this more specific, if you could see one thing happen over the next few years, as a result of the book, if someone were to walk away and they only take one thing, what message would you want them to walk away with? And what kind of practical implication would you want it to have within their life or ministry or, or whatever that would be? Really simple question. I know.
3: <laughs> it's hard to pick one thing that we hope happens. You know, I hope 50 years from now, yeah, uh, someone will pick up worthy in the American church and say, "Why did that book ever have yeah. to be written?"
2: Yeah, why did they like, write that? Wow. Like, What's going on?
3: I think if I had to, if readers take one thing away, it would be that God loves women mm-hmm. the same as He loves men, hmm. and He has given His Son to save them and redeem them so that they might reign with him.
2: Yeah, amen to that. Just Because we've heard from people, from some people who have said, it's even ridiculous that this book had to be written. Mm. And it is. It, it is. And our hope would be, and I think, Eric, I think this is the really great news. I think God's at work. Yeah. I think God is doing an amazing thing. And I would hope that however everything plays out in the next 20 years, I probably won't be here, but that, that women's voices would come to have the value in the church, in the home, in society that God has already said that they have. That would be my hope. Hmm.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's unfortunate books like this are being written. And I told someone just the other day, it was actually, I was actually talking with an atheist who was asking me, he's just, Hey man, he's like, what is going on? He's like, why is it so hard for Christians to get like the church to stuff? Why are they, they claim to be this religion of love and of truth and justice. and, And, and he just said, what, why is it taking so long for whistleblowers to come out? Or why do why does the church shun people who speak about this stuff? And I was like, I asked that question every single day as a Christian myself, but I also said, I, I feel like there's in many ways a new reformation happening. And I, I was saying that to myself a lot the last few months, and I felt dumb saying it because it sounds very dramatic, but I'm looking at all these books being written. I'm looking at engaging with abuse and trying to understand power and trying to understand how we treat people who have less powerful positions than us, how we treat women, how we treat minorities, how we treat, and there's so much great work happening just in the last year. I look at all the books I have stacked up on my desk all over the place. And there are a ton of people who I think are speaking to the angle they need to speak to with the intensity and with the, I think biblical authority that they need to really see some change happen and how the church at large responds to these really, if you want to say prophets or how the, to these people who are speaking mm-hmm. the truth is going to determine what I think the church looks like structurally over the next couple of decades. And I, I went from very, I, I think I'm still can sometimes dip into being cynical when I see some of these stories mm-hmm. out over and over again. Even the Ravi Zacharias story starting coming out, it, it, it's enough to really crush you and say what's going on where even the people we look to the most are having these tremendous situations of abuse and everywhere from failure to just downright manipulation and deceit. And, but I also am very optimistic when I see books like Worthy, when I see, you know, Pray Tell by Tiffany Bloom, and all these different books that are coming out that are just incredible and opening conversations that for me, eight, nine, 10 years ago, I wish I would have had as a teenager, I wish I would have had some of these. And so I, I really do. I, I appreciate your book a lot. I appreciate you taking the time to to do a podcast and, and chat about it. And I really do. If you're listening to the show and you haven't yet picked up a copy, just order a copy. Now you'll forget later, order it now. You can, you can think about your decision later, but it's definitely worth picking up and reading. And I really appreciate your voices in this area. So.
2: Thank you, Eric. Yeah. Thanks, Eric.
0: Thank you. Is there anything that's coming up in the horizon? Is there any future projects or anything you want to mention anywhere that people should be keeping an eye out moving forward or should we put, keep them to the book for now? Okay. There's a secret project <laughs> in the works, I can tell.
2: We're under contract to write about Amazing. flourishing as men and women. We're laughing because we have a deadline coming up. So that's why we're laughing. <laughs>
0: yeah. You're like, oh no, we're over by three minutes. We better hurry. We got to get back to writing. but. Um, <laughs> no amazing I we'll <laughs> for it and uh, yeah good luck getting started on that project thanks. and uh, really look forward to, to checking out what else you have to say so
2: thank you thanks. so much
1: thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast if you appreciated the content on the show please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook Instagram or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc additional information can always be found on preacher boys doc.com